Hi everyone, and welcome to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir, the only pod that takes you behind the scenes and gives you the inside word on the world of tech and growth from the insiders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of Luxury Escapes, journalist and angel investor, and I'm joined by my great mate Adir Schiffman, executive chairman of Catapult Sports and serial investor. We've got some super interesting stories to talk about this week, including the rebound at Kogan, the collapse of WeWork, ABL's Party of the Year, and some great listener questions. Let's start with WeWork. The once high-flying workspace business appears to be close to death, with the company's share price falling 99% from its highs. Its share price is down to 12 cents, and is valued at only 259 million US. After listing via a SPAC, for US $9 billion in October 2021. WeWork was famously valued at $47 billion US by SoftBank, and the business tried to list at US $72 billion during co-founder Adam Newman's torrid reign. But Newman was pushed out of the business shortly after, when it was essentially worthless. He was replaced by former telco exec, Marcello Claw, who somehow polished the business and listed it, only for WeWork to fall back down to zero. The company is still losing $2.5 billion every year and maintaining occupancy rates of only 75%. We should note, though, that it's not all co-working spaces that are struggling. In fact, some are doing really well. The Commons hit $44.6 million revenue in 2023, an increase of 83% on last year, and delivered profits of $8.9 million. The Hub, another local shared workspace, is also doing well while Creative Cubes, which is run by our good mate Toby Scovron and backed by Jeff Harris, continues to fly and open new locations all over Melbourne and Sydney. So, idea, what has happened to WeWork and why has it been such a disaster? It's more amazing that those other businesses are doing well. Like, if what, like what would you not want to own in 2023? So, like, hand sanitizer would be a bad business. Face masks are probably not good. Home office desks, I don't reckon they're going to be selling any more of those for the next 15 years. And you would think in this climate that anything to do with office space is not great. And, you know, we know that the commercial commercial rents are tumbling and there's lots of vacancy. Maybe the, maybe the counter-cyclical investment is a more casual working space, right, where you don't have to commit to lease and people can just go in two days a week and maybe that's the tailwind that things like Creative Cubes are getting. I think WeWork's problem is that there was never an eye to costs in that business. So they just went crazy. Like, you know, you went in there and it just felt like there was unlimited money to make the tenants happy. And, you know, you've seen this business now try to pivot to be a more realistic business and now everyone just says it feels cheap. And their locations, I mean, they went crazy with the locations. Obviously, they paired them back post, you know, in the lead up to the IPO. I I just think it's too cost heavy, that business. I think that's one of their key problems. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's, I think you could argue that the the fall in office rentals possibly helps these businesses. The the challenge is a lot of them, the WeWork locked in a lot of space at high rents pre-COVID. So that's clearly what's impacted them to a degree. I'm not sure if they were able to get out of these leases at all as a result of COVID, but possibly not. So that that, that must be weighing on that. I think at one stage they were the, the biggest renter of office or biggest owner or renter of office renter of office space in new york city pre-covid which was yeah, incredible they were. they were we use a lot yep. we use shared workspaces uh, we use soho house uh, which has a shared workspace in, in london that's fantastic um we use uh, we work actually in for our indian office in bangalore so we we absolutely use share i think there's utility there 
if you look at what WeWork's got, the positives, and clearly there's not many positives because business is worth basically zero, but it's got a very strong brand. It is the best brand in shared workspaces by a long way. It's got a well a well known brand, right? So everyone has heard of it. If you lined up these businesses and WeWork was one of the brands, and you said to people like you who use them, you know, rate which one represents a great experience and value for money. I'm not sure WeWork ranks near the top of that list. Yeah, well, I don't think they're bad. So I think they're probably. Well, that's a, I mean, that is the best marketing pitch I've ever heard, by the way. They're not bad. I mean, I think that is maybe why they're worth zero. Well, they've got, they've got a strong brand and and, and so they don't deliver a bad – I don't think there's a huge – I don't think I think this is possibly part of the problem. There's not a huge differentiated product. So, And Amazon's wrecked a lot of these industries. Amazon's got that unlimited cap. And so their SoftBank wins – and so obviously – we work SoftBank's biggest disaster, but certainly not its only disaster. And SoftBank's famously the, the big Japanese VC fund that's really almost purely funded by Saudi Arabia's money. But yeah, so if you look at SoftBank, they had a number of businesses that didn't work. And this is a great question. They, they pumped so much capital into this business. And it was even before then, they were, Adam Newman was prolific. But certainly post SoftBank, it was even more so. I'm not sure if have you watched that WeWork show. Was it Apple? It was an incredible show. Uh, Anne Hathaway and, and um, Jared Leto, absolutely recommend it. But it's strange that the business that had so much capital, had the strongest brand, has been the biggest failure when the local players seem to have gotten it right. It's, a, it's almost counterintuitive in some ways. Well, you know, I think um, capital as a competitive advantage, by the way, I don't think is a great sales pitch. Like, the, you know, someone once said to me, this was about lending money, but it's also true with investing. The easiest job in the world is giving money away. The hardest job in the world is getting it back. And I think that that is a pretty good summary. And so I don't think um, all of that money was very helpful to these startups because it just, as I said, it got them into bad mm. habits where there was really no focus on margins, like unit economics were terrible and it's like build the brand and they will come and we'll make later money later on. What I think is that these local businesses, you know, when you were first building your business, you had this level of extreme hustle where you made every dollar go very far you knew exactly what your customers wanted and you knew how to make them happy. And when you're a founder and your business gets bigger, like your business is a big business now, one of the things that drives you nuts is that people that have not come from that background do not feel the same hustle and they don't come from the same place, right? Like I reckon at some point you literally cleaned a toilet in one of your offices because like I did. And I think the challenge with a WeWork versus, I'm using Creative Cubes because we know it, right? But it's true for these other ones as well. They've got hustle. Like they know their customer, they're close to their customer, they're close to the local market, they just need to make it work. What does WeWork care if the Sydney office works or one of the 30 Sydney offices or how it operates? So that I think that is the competitive advantage that little players always have against big players. And the truth here is that you had a big player that never had the profitability to justify like the lack of closeness to the customer that most big players do. Yeah, I think that's right. I think we talk about uh, environmental social governance, the ESG investing. If you look at the, the G, G actually does make sense. If you look at companies with bad governance, they tend to be bad performers. And uh, my old mate, Dean Patch from Ownership Matters has done a governance index. Uh, I'm not sure if he releases it publicly, but there's a significant correlation between company, companies with bad governance and bad performance. Forget the environmental and social, because I think that's that's more tenuous. But the governance is right. And WeWork had horrific... Remember when, when they tried to list this business and Adam Newman owned WeWork, the name, and sold it, basically bribed the business into yeah, paying him yeah. I don't know, tens yeah. of millions of dollars for the name. They were leasing a bunch of uh, property back from Adam. who owned. So the governance in this business was horrific, and, and investors ran away. So I think the G and 
SG is, I'm getting myself confused here, is, is really relevant. I think that's a, that was a big one with, with this business. That I said, that the, the small uh, localised players that are bootstrapped or raise a little bit of money uh, tend to have much better governance and, as you say, worry about the pennies much more. We, whilst we're not bootstrapped anymore, we, we operate like a bootstrap business, maybe to our detriment at times, uh, that we're so frugal at times that we don't tend to spend – sometimes we don't spend as much as we should, but it avoids the WeWork situation, which, is, which has been certainly – Edu- educative in many ways to to the market. I look. I know your management style, and you have a very detailed grasp of what's going on in your business more than probably most CEOs, to be honest. And I think WeWork historically was at the opposite end of that spectrum, and so that is also a huge problem, I think. And we could have a discussion another time about governance because I'm sure we're going to have good quality disagreements on certain things. I mean, I don't know what your view on you know, independent non-executive directors are and how much stock they should own or whatever, but that is probably a discussion for another time. I think we should need to disagree more. I think it's, a, it's a, one of our failings thus far as we agree on too much stuff. We need more of the Scott Cara <laughs> disagreement. Well, hopefully we'll get there. Uh, let's go on to our next topic, which is one of our favourite businesses, Kogan, run by our good mates, Rosalind and David. Kogan last week announced earnings. Uh, and I think overall it was a positive story. The headline loss uh, of $26 million was improved on last year. Uh, which was a $35 million loss. But a lot of that loss came from some over-ordering of historical inventory. So I don't think we can hold them uh, too accountable for, or hold them too responsible for that this year. Obviously, they made a bit of a mistake a couple of years ago. Investors did take the result largely in their stride and have been impressed with the business's transformation. Critically, inventory is down uh, to only $68 million. It was $160 million this time last year. Uh, and Kogan said a key achievement was that for the first time, gross sales from its platforms, which is its Kogan Marketplace, Kogan First, which is effectively Amazon Prime competitor, and its Kogan Verticals made up the majority of total sales uh, with the same for its gross gross profit. Kogan.com platform sales contributed 57% of gross sales and 71% of gross profit. What do you think? Is this a good news story for for Kogan? Its share price has been a bit of a run of late, up about 30% in the last few months. What are your views on on how the guys are executing? Yeah, so I mean, as you said, like our disclosure is we both like David and Rosalind a lot and I think you know they I think they're the only thing that I would consider a real pure e-commerce brand in Australia they are very smart like these are very smart operators and don't you think I mean I know this is a bit of a like this is an aside but like they're actually um very self-aware guys Rosalind's got this like public persona, which is quite bombastic, which helps the brand. But like in private, he's actually like very considered and sophisticated and the same with Schaefer. And so I think fundamentally, these are very smart, two very smart retailers that don't really talk crap and, you know, know how to run a business. The problem, I I think the overarching problem this business has is it's not very good to sell other people's stuff. Like I'd rather sell my own stuff. I mean, that's why I like to direct to consumer. And so like you sell other people's stuff, but it's a different industry. Like you're not going to go and buy hotels. And, you know, what they've kind of managed to transition to is selling other people's stuff in a much more efficient way than having to buy and hold inventory and ship it out themselves. Plus they're selling more of their own stuff now. Plus they've found a way to start monetizing their customer base with ancillary products. So I think if like I think Kogan is an easy business to bet on long term personally. But I have Kogan, what do they call their thing? They're not going to like that I forgot what it's called. What's it? Kogan first? Kogan first. I paid for Kogan first. By the way, I get no discounts from these guys when I buy stuff. I just want to point that out. Zero. (laughs) I I don't know. I've never asked for a discount. no, I didn't, like. I mean, I think I, I felt I hinted 
I bought I bought like a quite a big ticket item off them, and I said to Schaefer, you know, I'm buying this item, da da da. And he's complained to me about his money. <laughs> no discounts. <laughs> but like, I think fundamentally, like a lot of their products are very good now, and I think this is going to be a good business. But ultimately, I much prefer businesses that either sell their own stuff from start to finish, or that are like much more scalable businesses selling other people. The last thing I'll say is this, like, you know, Adore Beauty selling other people. By the way, you know, people make money selling other people's stuff, like Foot Locker sells other people's stuff, and, like, Culture Kings has done amazingly well. I'm shocked at how well that business has done, selling other people's stuff. But, like, Adore Beauty, like, that has got to be the hardest business selling other people's stuff. I've known Kate Morris for, like, 20 years. I I really like Kate. But, like, you know, selling other people's stuff at thin margins when there's an entire internet to compare at any given point in time, that to me does not sound like something you want to bet on long term. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. I think that just shows how good David and Ralston are to be performing as well. And the problem with the market, the market's so distracting. Because you look at Kogan hit twenty five bucks a share during COVID, and we think, oh, they're only five dollars a share now. Look, it was twenty five. It should never have been twenty five. It was just the market being irrationally yeah. exuberant. And now we market up pre COVID, they're trading at four bucks. It's now five bucks. If you look at the actual long term graph, it's actually been a pretty good story. They listed a dollar fifty six years ago. So if you if you invested in the Kogan float, you've tripled more than tripled your money, which is a good result yeah. in three yeah. years. They're competing against a business that doesn't mind losing three hundred million dollars a year to win the market in Amazon that has enough massive business in the site called AWS that's really valuable. So you're competing against probably the worst possible competitor who's got Amazon Prime so that you get free video. So you imagine competing against these guys. I, there's always no one worse to compete against. No, it's the worst competitor. It's worse than competing against the government. At least the government eventually runs out of taxpayer money and gets voted out. Like, And the governments are generally inept. So you compare Amazon's sharp, yeah, that's great true. operators, and they've got unlimited money. Yeah, AWS generates effectively unlimited money. It's... I think what they've done with Kogan First, and so the Kogan First loyalty program now has 401,000 members. That's an yeah, incredible, incredible achievement. Agreed. Then they pay 100 bucks each a year. That's $40 million. That's in, what I'm paying, re- 100 bucks. I'm not paying, it's not 100 bucks. Oh, is it 100? Oh, maybe it's 70. Yeah, I reckon it's Maybe look at the credit card. Either way, it's, it's sort of then $30 million a year in rent. That, that's, and that's, so let's say they make nothing off everything else and all their, their profit comes from Kogan First, that, and then they got mobile and some other stuff. This could be a, and this keeps growing to, sort of gets to a million members eventually. That's a $100 million effectively steady state revenue business uh, that, that could get to a billion dollar valuation in the next five years and would be a, one of the great stories of Australian retail, I think. I think these membership um, things, like they're really interesting. So if you look at a business like Adairs, when they report, almost all of their sales come from people that hold their loyalty card. And they, I think it's 80% plus. I think it's less online and they spend more money. You see this getting rolled out at more and more providers now. And just this idea of being able to get people to pay $10, 20 $30. Like Adairs is beautiful because they don't have to deliver anything, right? Like people go into this, like they're never offering free delivery. It's in store. But I think that um, that most retailers, the smart ones now, are catching on to this idea that you need some sort of club because there's a sunk cost attached to it that increases the frequency and basket size of purchases. So we're, we're at Luxury Scapes, we're about halfway through rolling out a loyalty program, largely for that. I assume I'll get the Chairman's Lounge equivalent Absolutely. instantly when you Absolutely. roll it out. Will. Okay, cool. uh, good. Oh, and my, and my <laughs> son. <laughs> Nathan, is his name Nathan? <laughs>
It can be <laughs> for this purpose. So, so we're obviously, <laughs> if you look at Endeavour Group, which runs uh, the old Woolworth spin-off, runs down Murphy's, they, I think two weeks ago they announced their results, and they had very similar. 80% of their customers and 90% of their revenue comes from their loyalty. There is a bit of a causation correlation issue. So your best customers are more likely to join a loyalty scheme because they got the most to gain. So there is that, but you're right. Clearly, I pull out a credit, my Amex Qantas credit card, which gets me about 50 extra points even though it makes no difference, like 50 points makes no it's worth five cents, if that. Yet I pull out that credit card because I'm getting it. So clearly even a tiny amount of points or reward or whatever it is does change, absolutely changes my behavior. I've got no doubt that the loyalty, and casinos are the masters of loyalty and casinos and airlines have owned loyalty for a number of years. And now it looks like the rest of the market's finally catching on. And then, I mean, Dan Murphy, the thing with their loyalty though is it's just a discount card. I just want to make the point that shouldn't you be pulling out like a Virgin credit card now? You need to be. I mean, you've got to deal with Virgin. We work with Virgin, but I think the Vir- if you look at all the different Virgin brands, I think they're different ownerships. Just they they all pay the Virgin Headco a bit of licensing money. Yeah, but I use my. I've got a Virgin credit card that gives me Virgin points. That's good. Yep. It gives me a lot yeah, of points. Absolutely. It's a Visa card. <clears throat> yep. No one takes Amex. That's a pro. Anyway, whatever. I love Amex. But you know, I will say this about like the, these loyalty programs. Like you, the people roll out loyalty programs, and then a ton of them don't do anything with them. And the worst offender, in my view, is probably flybys because, like, I've been a member of flybys for, like, four centuries and they've got all of my spending data and they know everything about me and the quality of offers that they're feeding me to try and increase my frequency and basket size, it's like they've never even met me. Well, I, know, I know Anna who runs flybys. So I'll certainly word her up and ask her what's going on with, with that year's offers. Uh, I mean, don't, don't, you know, don't turn her against me. But like, basically, <laughs> no, no, it's a guy I know. Who, uh, Is she going to listen to this podcast? I mean, hopefully she listens to she it. She might. I know Steve, I'm sure Steve, her husband, who's a, who's a good mate of mine, will be listening, no doubt. The answer will be legacy issues. That's the answer, right? It's legacy some legacy issues but you think of there should be no better loyalty program than a program like flybys which sees me between them and woolworths they see me a few times a week do you pull your flybys card out every time you shop there uh i have i scan it off my phone okay but you use it i don't never i never redeem the points yeah i've got a lot of points i think the woolworths scheme and i think they work with quantium who i think is partly owned by woolworths is a is a pretty good one it's it's well, we're yeah, the Qantas one. I pumped those points yeah. to Qantas. Yeah, I think the scheme generally... Is that what you do? And that ecosystem is, is pretty smart. The Quant- and the Qantas loyalty business uh, is a great... And so is Velocity as well, which is copying at Niku, who's running Velocity X Qantas. Uh, but the Qantas loyalty business is a beast of a business. It's a money-making machine, incredible brand. Uh, obviously, Qantas itself is having some headwinds, but the loyalty business is a, is a remarkably good business. This is my, going to be my last comment on loyalty. But So this is what I think. There is, I think there's some very interesting stuff happening. Like Amazon does the most innovative stuff in a lot of ways because they've got the capacity to do it. But they just decided we need to get people to pay for free shipping and not give it up because we know what that does to the performance of our business. And so then they just started rolling out whole companies, whole businesses to get you to keep your prime membership, including a Netflix competitor. Now, I don't know what their content spend is compared to Netflix, but it's bloody enormous, right? I think it's more. Yeah, it's there, there you go. And so like basically, so Amazon's got this, and I think what we're going to see, and so what Qantas has done is they've said, instead of setting up your own loyalty program, just piggyback on our great loyalty program because that's effectively what they're doing by, you know, selling points. But if I was in a position today like a Kogan, I told Gabby this years ago at Catch like that I do, Gabby Leibovich, like I would get a few of these non-competitive organisations together, retail and others, and create a loyalty program amongst them 
because that is much more powerful than a single retailer mm. loyalty program. It's kind of what West Farmers did when they bought Catch with the one pass that Catch had, which, by the way, that's the way I buy from Target and Kmart now because I don't ever cancel any of this stuff. That's yeah. my problem. And so now I've got this Kmart and Target membership, but it does make me buy. Yeah. I bought like a $16 ironing board with free delivery. I mean, that wasn't great news <laughs> for the company, but like, <laughs> but I think that, that there's going to be interesting things happening. E-commerce is going to be driving the interesting evolution of loyalty over the next few years. And we talk about that. So just to mention Catch, it just shows how well the Coke and guys have gone. So Catch has lost, I think, $200 million last year. And Kogan obviously lost 20, but but is reducing and should make money next year. So it just shows how how good a st- and every e-commerce business is other than Amazon and Amazon's losing money, but every e-commerce business has basically died or sold for scrap. Uh, whereas Kogan looks like being the, the great survivor, and it's a real testament to Rosalind and David for performing so well. So well done, guys. Moving on, uh, our story and this story caught our eye uh, on ASIC, and it was the really sad comments of former ASIC chair James Shipton. And he said uh, last week that he considered ending his life after a bitter media campaign uh, launched by billionaire Clive Palmer, who placed 43 full-page ads attacking Shipton. Remember those big yellow ads? Uh, Palmer, of course, was being investigated by ASIC at the time, which raises some really serious questions as to whether billionaires should be able to act in such a manner and place millions of dollars worth of what appear to be pretty defamatory ads uh, in newspapers across the country. Shipton had his own issues at the time. He was being investigated uh, for taxpayer-funded expenses, which he was later totally exonerated and cleared. Shipton appeared in front of a, the parliamentary inquiry into ASIC uh, last week. Uh, and I tell you, what are your, what are your thoughts on what, what is a, a really – I was really saddened to hear this. Yeah, I mean, my first thought on this is uh, – it's going to be quite a deep thought for me to make. But, like, I think people might be surprised at, like, the number of us that – under severe pressure at one point or another, felt like the only way out was some kind of extreme thing that is euphemistically called self-harm. And, you know, I'm not shocked that he ended up in this place. I think I think the number of people would be, I mean, especially like ambitious people that feel like they're under this extreme pressure. And so, you know, I'm very, very happy that he pushed through that and didn't go down that route because... People do, and it's an absolute, you know, it's really catastrophic and disastrous. And I feel quite passionately about that. Like, I think, you know, it's good that there's a focus on mental health and Gen Z has, like, worked stuff out that I think, you know, we as Gen X kind of struggled with. But, you know, I think it's horrible. My, I mean, my takeaway out of all of this as a big picture is this. Be careful running an organisation where your wage is being paid for by taxpayers. Like, we saw what happened at Australia Post. Like, first, Ahmed Fahour got his arms and legs ripped off, right? Which then Christine Holgate came in and, uh, you know, it was even worse what she got. And I know Michelle Guthrie, she's on my board at Catapult, and her treatment at the AB- running ABC was absolutely appalling. And so I think the thing is this. Any, let's call it, like, well-known statutory authority that is taxpayer-funded... The, the role running that is a political role. That is just how it goes. It's a political role. And I don't think that is well understood by the people that take those jobs. And I don't even want to debate whether it should be or it shouldn't be. But they have a political target on their back. And they cannot rely on anyone to defend them. There was another guy at ASIC. I can't remember. It was like the number two guy. I don't know where. I think it was ASIC. Or it might be in the ACCC. Where he took the role with a pre-agreement that he would get a certain relocation expense. I think it was Daniel Crennan who was with at the same time as Shipton, yeah. Right, and basically he got absolutely skewered 
for something where it was pre-agreed. I thought it was completely awful. But, like, he wandered into this um, cesspit called politics, right? And so I think that is the sad thing about this. And as for stopping Clive Palmer doing what he does, I don't know how you'd make a law that says billionaires can do this or not do this. Or I mean, there are defamation laws. I probably wouldn't want to take on a billionaire in court. It's a disastrous situation. Should you criminalise mm. defamation? I mean, that's a can of worms. I think, used to, I think there used to be a law. I think defamation used to be criminal many years ago. But we have many cases have actually defamation laws that are too short. I think this is one case where... If you're alleged to have done something wrong, and then there's there's forums and courts where you can make your case, and if and if it was wrongly charged, then, then that that will transpire. But to be able to run ads saying somebody's a criminal who's simply doing their job as a corporate cop, I mean, and, and these, as you say, these roles are generally paid a lot, generally a lot less than what these people can get in the in the private sector. So to an extent, uh, the likes of James Shipton are doing it as partly as a sort of public service not all but partly do you reckon i don't buy i don't buy that you reckon that i reckon they're doing it because they want to do it it's profile it's this all right it's lucky it's good it's a pub, but i don't reckon that's i'm not i don't buy that argument i think if you're taking a role like a, remember joe kennedy when he went went around the sec uh for, i think for roosevelt at the time like this this is a rothy guy who went with him sort of poacher turn gamekeeper i think there are certainly you know malcolm turnbull when he was he had other reasons but malcolm turnbull didn't need money when he was PM. I think he did it partly profile, but partly public service. I'm shocked at your lack of cynicism <laughs> around the motivations for people to go into powerful, well-known office. I'm much more cynical about that. I'm not, by the way, I don't say that, that sounds critical. Like, I think, you know that famous Paul Keating comment of like, I always back self-interest because yeah. at least you know it's trying, right? Like, I'm a big believer yeah. in that. So I don't mind self-interest. I think it's great. I like... That's fine, but I do think that um, you shouldn't ascribe so much goodness to these things. <laughs> we might have to agree to disagree, but nevertheless, a very sad story, and obviously our hearts go out to James Shipton and his family, and, and good news that he's made it through and, and can testify in front of Parliament. But are you saying that they should? We should like. So you think we should criminalise? Like, what do you think they should do about that? Because you raise it, and then but you got to solve this problem. Interesting. Newspapers are usually fairly strict. We run a lot of newspaper ads, and usually you can't just run anything. Um, they usually have a degree of. Um, checks and balances. I'm surprised that, that Nine and, and News allowed these ads to run. Obviously, they needed the money and, they, and Clive Palmer's got a lot of it. He, I think he's the third or fourth richest person in Australia. But I'm surprised the newspapers allowed. I think that was pretty disappointing that newspapers allowed ads like this to run. I think that's, that's the biggest failure. But there was also, I think he saw like all these out-of-home billboards is what... Wasn't the story he looked up when he was somewhere and saw this billboard staring back at him with his face or something and uh, as in, i think james Shipton said he opened the paper one morning and saw the big ad oh, okay. i mean that was but but I mean, there was billboards as well but and there were big bright yellow ads if you remember so they were super noticeable and that really ugly sort of I, I think this is pretty disappointing from the newspapers um hopefully that doesn't this doesn't happen again i think it's the problem the the problem is, though, and this is like, I know we're wandering into something else, but this is like, you know, this regulation about, um, you know, what what would what criminalising misinformation on social media platforms and who gets to be the arbiter of what misinformation is. I mean, I know a guy in Sydney, actually, I won't say his name, but... Um, he he's like let's say he's involved on in, in politics and he's in business and he got blocked from LinkedIn as it happens. He thinks for po for posting you know a video that was actually all over the media, mm -hmm. but he never found out what it was. And two weeks later, they let him back on the platform. And so the thing is, 
Free speech, like that's a problematic thing because unlike maths, there's no right or wrong answer to where free speech starts and ends. And so you don't want the people that control the media or own the billboard sites to be deciding what is and is not permissible speech. But on the other hand, you can't have this kind of situation happening. And so it's, I think, you know, it's a very, very problematic issue to solve. The misinformation thing, I think you're right, that's impossible, especially on social media. But but newspapers and TV stations have been doing this for 50 years. They're well-versed in, we've run ads and newspapers said, you can't run this, this doesn't, this isn't right. We made an error, whatever it was. They they have been yeah, doing this for a long time. Yeah. And newspapers should never have run this. It's pretty okay, obvious this enough. is defamatory. Uh, it's a public figure. It's a head of ASIC. You can't, I don't think you can either also run an ad saying the head of police is a criminal. I, I think it's the same, I think there's, there are, there are certain things you can and can't say, and I think this well and truly crossed the line of something you shouldn't be able to say. There's no, there's other things Clive Palmer could have said that were far less um, defamatory, damaging that that I think would have been okay. But this crossed, I think, crossed the line, and, and clearly had the worst happen, and somebody died or whatnot. This is a father. This is a, a son who, who could have died. You could make a law that says that um, that sort of quarantines people involved in action against you, legal action against you, although you know where that's going to lead, right? The problem is everything here is a slippery slope to catastrophe and Vladimir Putin. I reckon we got to mention, we got to be derogatory to Vladimir Putin on every podcast. Uh, I, 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 we saw him last time. So I think that's, that's, that's something I might ask to clear up. <laughs> oh, that's true. Uh, let's go on to our, our big story. Last week we saw a story that really would only happen, I think, in Australia, maybe some autocratic Eastern European countries in the 80s, and that was famed law firm Arnold Block Liebler, uh, which is not the largest, but certainly one of the most highly regarded law firms in the country, had that big 70th anniversary celebration. Uh, the event was held at Melbourne's swanky Grand Hyatt Ballroom and is attended by a veritable A-list from the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese to Victorian Premier Dan Andrews to a swathe of billionaires, including Solly Liu, who had a big week, uh, Alex Waislitz, uh, son-in-law of, of the late Richard Pratt, uh, John Gandall, owner of Chadston, uh, Spotlights, Maury Freyd, uh, Vizzy Exec Chairman uh, Anthony Pratt, and as well as Mark Beeson, who will soon be a centarian. And whilst Peter Dutton didn't rock up, he sent Simon Birmingham, James Patterson, and Julian Lisa. But there was arguably one more especially influential person in the room, and that was our very own Adir Schiffman. Uh, so <laughs> before I sort of say my piece on, on this event, uh, what was it like being in the most powerful room in Australia? And more importantly, how many drinks did you fetch for uh, our mate Dan Andrews? Well, actually, um, Dan was one metre in front of me. Just to show you how um, what a small world this podcast is, I was actually sit- mostly speaking with um, Kogan and Schaefer, for most of the events. Um, but yeah, he was a metre in front of me, Dan, and he had his back to me and many thoughts went through my mind. But, um, you know, it was polite company, so we were all very polite. I have to tell you, you know, firstly, the Grand Hyatt Ballroom is not swanky, <laughs> so let's just get get that out of the way. And um, Swanky for me, maybe not maybe not for your... your we uh, clearly live in different break. circles here. Kim, you're Very a, different you're, like, you're in the you're in the Virgin Chairman's Lounge. It's, it's called something Nothing different. Nothing swanky for you. <laughs> Everything's oh, oh yeah, it's called something different. That's true. So um, so I think you know when you're in these rooms. They don't feel very powerful. Like you see people there that you recognise. Like obviously, I know a chunk of people in that room. Some of I would say in that room were a, a group of people that I really like on a human level that I love spending time with, and then a chunk of people that I think are awful people and then most people in the middle who you know kind of in passing and just say hi to. But it was actually a pretty um, – it was a pretty uh, 
didn't feel like a very powerful event, except for the fact that the Prime Minister spoke. By the way, I think Dutton didn't turn up because uh, Elbow spoke about the voice and Mark Liebler spoke about the voice. So I think that's why Dutton didn't come. So I'm assuming you're a client of ABL, which garnered your invitation? I am. Across, I am. Uh, for Catapult, I'm not sure what else. I'm a friend and a client. ABL is a very interesting firm. So it's they're a super commercial firm. They, they don't – I worked at a different firm called Freehills uh, and – Freehills is a much larger firm, and generally the way law firms work, and it's not always the case, because there's a firm called Wachtels, uh, Wachtel Lipton in the US, which is very much like ABL, which is a boutique firm, which is highly regarded. But usually the biggest firms are considered the best and the most desirable for you, you finish law school and you want to work for the biggest firm, be it a Mallison's, be it a mm-hmm. uh, Allen's and Overy in the UK. So you tend to, tend to work for the biggest firm. But ABL's sort of always been a bit different. They've had these they charge a lot. They almost, I think, charge more than anyone. Uh, they hire super commercial people. So we talked about David Shaver. He used to work at, at uh, ABL before working at Kogan. Uh, and I think Paul Bassett worked at ABL, not Andrew. Mm-hmm. One of the Bassetts worked yeah, at, I think, I think so. Paul who worked at ABL. So yeah. Paul obviously famously founded, co-founded Seek.com. So they, they tend to hire uh, very commercial people who, who are very high achievers. Uh, Leon Zwire is probably the most famous current practitioner at ABL, who's sort of the, the most well-known litigator in the country. Uh, they, they're very well-known. We've been, I've been against sort of on the other side of the table a few times with ABL. I haven't been overly impressed, to be honest. I think they, their reputation is much bigger than – I don't think their lawyers are any better or worse than the other big firms, to be honest. I think it's all sort of much of a much – I think they have built an incredible brand, though, and clearly the, the 70th birthday to get the prime minister in the room. And I think that's mm. – uh, maybe I'm a bit, a, a bit uh, precious here, but – I don't like seeing commerce and politics meld in such a way. And I, I don't want to say we're getting towards fascism here when there's one and the same, but when you've got the Prime Minister and the Premier of Victoria and big billionaires and the likes of Adishif, but big billionaires in the room, it, if you you get the feeling of someone who wasn't in that room and who wasn't invited clearly that favours are happening, that people are talking and that, that laws are being made or potentially being made that benefit people there. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it doesn't give rise to great confidence where we've been through this whole thing with Elbow and Qantas and the Sun and the Chairman's Lounge. This almost feels worse than that. This, you've got billionaires and politicians all hanging out together in their secret club and everybody else just paying the bills. Yeah, so what I think is, uh, so firstly I want to say I hate these going to these kind of events. I find them like there's, the act of going to them just fills me with overwhelming discomfort. But once I'm there, like if there are nice people there, it's fun. But like I don't really look forward to them. What I'll say about this is so I've got a different view of ABL. I, I think, don't you think, with all professional services firms, it's heavily dependent on the people that you deal with there. I, they're not the most expensive lawyers that I've used, but they, I mean, they're expensive. And like the guys. I'm going to, I'll just name drop, like the guys there that like are my friends and that I use are people like Jeremy Liebler, who's obviously Mark Liebler's son, and Jeremy Lanza, who's uh, Henry Lanza's son, who runs the joint, yeah? And so I, fu- like, I think they're both excellent. Um, and like I say that because like, like I can't comment about the firm as a whole because I can just comment about the people that I deal with. I tell you what I think about what you just said. So, um, so I think an event like this, so I think there's validity in what you're saying about be careful of business business leaders and politicians, you know, getting together and doing deals. I think this event is not where it happens. I mean, I don't know how many people were in that room, maybe 900. There was no there was no club going on in this room. <laughs> Everything was open. It was not secretive. Like, there were, there were lots of politicians in that room and, like, I don't think there were deals being done there. There was just fun. But definitely people become familiar with other people there. Um, 
I'm much more worried about the real deals that happen behind closed doors. Like a politician does a $10,000 a head fundraiser for 15 people. And, you know, it's now hard for property developers to get into those rooms because of what has happened in the past, for example. So these are not the events that worry me. I think this was... And by the way, i tell you what I think. So this is the third Prime Minister that's been there for a 10-year anniversary. Mm. I think Howard was yeah. there, Abbott was there, now Elbow was there. Like Mark Liebler, whose name is on the door, he's been a long-time supporter of like Aboriginal and Indigenous uh, like reconciliation and empowerment, etc. And so I think that was predominantly the basis for a lot of the political stuff. There's a lot of pro bono work that that firm does. And so, yeah, I know you've been on the, the other side of them. I mean, like you don't like some of the stuff that they're proxy wars, right, proxy advisor wars and all sorts of stuff. I think that's just the cut and thrust of commercial stuff. And I think the thing nobody wants to talk about with law firms and professional services firms is it's all glamorous and there's politicians and this and that. But the reason that they can have that is because people like me pay the <laughs> bills. It's ultimately about making money. And yep. so, like, that's the truth of things. But I don't think there was anything sinister going on there. I mean, there were journals from the Australian and the Herald Sun and the Finn Review there. So, yeah, yep. I don't think that's not where dodgy stuff goes on. I think the proxy stuff was a great example. So just for, for listeners, so uh, two years ago, Josh Frydenberg uh, undertook a bizarre war against proxy advisors who, are, who are, I used to work with one many years ago who basically give advice to shareholders, usually big superannuation funds, on how to vote on, on governance issues. So pretty harmless sort of people, the proxy advisors. But they do occasionally annoy executives who are paid a lot. Uh, and ABL works with a lot of executives who are paid a lot. And ABL, there's, there was certainly, well, it didn't take a great uh, a great detective to put two and two together. The ABL worked very closely with Josh Frydenberg. I think someone from Josh Frydenberg's office, uh, or from ABL's office, was seconded to Josh Frydenberg to write True. the legislation. Luke, that's correct. Uh, which was, ultimately, it was ridiculously stupid by Frydenberg to pursue this because there was really no upside there. There was only downside. He eventually withdrew it because it was just complete, complete insanity. But it didn't look great that a firm like ABL was effectively seconding people to write legislation to help its clients uh, for a liberal government that was really flailing at the time the whole thing was messy and now they're throwing a party with half the politicians and big businessmen like like a dear shiftman in the room it, it just feels icky uh it's not uh, maybe it's because i never get invited to these things i'm a bit uh, there's some sour grapes here but but ultimately I, I just don't like it i don't think you've got sour grapes like i think your views on this like you know you don't have to be like uh, you don't have to minimize it like you've got strong ethically based views on this i'll just do i'll run the rebuttal on what you just said so luke who was seconded to josh's office he was one of the lawyers that worked on some of my stuff so i know him he was seconded not to write legislation that abl wanted he did he was seconded for a whole lot he worked for josh right and so i i, I thought that's he's a smart guy and i thought that was good i think you and i are going to have a different view on proxy advisors like i've had proxy advisors advise against voting for my re-election in catapult because i've got lots of shares and i'm not independent and okay and then i've reached out to talk to them and they refuse to talk to me so like you and i are going to have different views on some proxy advisors but not on others like i, I wouldn't tar them all with one brush yeah no i agree I agree with that by the way i think people are, that, that that's just a dud proxy advisor which you get yeah yeah and like i saw josh at the function at the abl function i was like actually he was a few meters away from me right and he was talking to people he was talking to lots of mm. labor people josh burns was there like as a labor member like so yeah. i think um i don't i don't know like i don't have to defend the war against proxy advisors cuz really i did not have any dog in that fight at all but what i think is 
Basically, lawyers in their day job are paid to advocate for the interests of their clients. And it's like the way that everybody tears shreds off Alan Joyce for all of the bonus he got running Qantas, he's just employed by Qantas to make money for their shareholders. And in the process, he makes money for himself. And so if you don't like it, change the system, but you can't blame people for acting on incentives. And I think that that is what professional services companies do. And like, that's how it goes. Yeah, I, 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 I bear no ill will to AVL for being great advocates for their clients. I bear ill will to politicians for being in the room and for allowing – so, yeah, this was not – I spoke to Jeremy after that whole proxy incident happened. He gave his take and I, 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 I like Jeremy. I think he's a very good lawyer. Uh, but the issue isn't on the AVL side. The issue is on the politician side. The politicians are supposedly representative of the people shouldn't be hanging out with billionaires. Like hang out with billionaires when you're retired from politics. Don't do it while you're in – and clearly this is not – what, they're always going to do this because who who pays for their re-election is, is people. But but ultimately, I don't think they should be. I told Jeremy my dream is I'm going to have lunch with you and him <laughs> and we're going to have a very enjoyable lunch because I'm a lover, not a fighter. <laughs> and like we're all in the same team of like, you know, free speech and Western values and whatever it is. But I know, like, I, like he, yeah, I know that there was not personal stuff in that, like, which is good, right? But, you know, if you want to meet lawyers – that we can have problems with. I'll introduce you to some lawyers that I've got some problems with. It's a long list. It's a long list. Well, before we finish up today, let's get to our very first listener question. And don't forget, you can send any of your listener questions into contrarianspod at gmail.com. Just send us a voice recording. And this one comes from Martin from Mordialic. Hi, Adam. It's uh, Martin from Mordialic here. Hope you're well. Um, I just had a question on the current status of the economy. We're hearing a lot of stuff about doom and gloom, uh, mortgage cliffs, that type of thing. What's that actually, um, how does that frame the decisions that you make about uh, business investments going forward? Are you, are you uh, proceeding with trepidation? Are you still going as, as you were previously? Or are you heavily scaling back with sort of storm clouds on the horizon? Keen to get your thoughts, thank you. Thank you for Martin from Mordialic. Great question. Um, I might hand it over to your idea to hit, hit this one. Well, I think the economy is crazy because basically there was high inflation. The RBA jacked up rates to try and make people lose jobs. No, no one wants to say that, but you know, you, you know economics. That's what it is. Yep. Nobody lost their job, basically. <laughs> Somehow inflation moderated a bit despite that. And, um, and now we've got this mixed economy. And so I think... Um, you don't want to be in the middle of the current economy. Like if you're at the cheap end, I think you're doing okay. Although best and less seems to have struggled, which I was mm. alarmed by. And the top end seems to be going along really strongly still. Yeah. You know, I think for me, like it all comes down to whether employment passes through four and a half percent. It's not forecast to. If it doesn't, I don't want to be the one to say I think there's a soft landing because I don't even believe in the concept. But yeah. I think we might have some systemic shortage of employees in society. And so it means that we're never going to have, well, not for the foreseeable future, this deep recession. The mortgage cliff, I thought that was a real thing. Mm. It turned out not to be a real thing. Yeah. I heard uh, one of the bank CEOs come out and say half of the people have now already gone on to variable yeah. rates. That are they're all fine. They're all fine because they've all got jobs. Mm. So nobody is having their house sold from under them if yeah. they've got a job. So, you know, I think the heady days of the COVID boom are over. Yeah. If you're in retail, it's definitely harder. I don't, you could tell me how travel is feeling. Yeah. It's almost unknowable, in my view, where the economy is going to be in 12 months' time. I think you're right. I think it's the most difficult forecasting environment that I've 
been through. Usually you can sort of tell. Um, mm-hmm. You could tell in 06, 07 that there was problems coming. Like not maybe not the extent of the GFC, but I was short the market then. You could tell. Now, I can't quite tell. There certainly is a big... And I think part of the reason is this economic dualism. So you've got... Uh, people who are struggling, who and this isn't just people who are on high incomes, but these are people caught who have over-leveraged themselves, bought in the last five years, mm. maybe hit the mortgage cliff and are paying now 5% and don't have much money to do anything but pay the mortgage. So they're paying yep. it still, but they don't have much money. But the thing is, that's a pretty small portion of society. Mm-hmm. So you only got... So 67% of people live in houses they, they own, I think mm-hmm. is the, the number. Mm-hmm. Uh, a big chunk of them own it outright. Another big chunk are, are past that point. So you're talking like 10% of people. So mm-hmm. it's a really small marginal number of people who are really struggling. Not to reduce the scale yeah. of their suffering, but yeah. it's a pretty small their number. Their suffering is real, but it is not like anywhere Wide near spread. the majority of yeah. the, the, the And economy. if you look at, uh, and you asked about travel, so we're, travel in general, not just us, but most travel businesses are flying at the moment. Part of that's pent up demand from being irrationally. So that hasn't house. changed. Travel is still flying. We had a record month in July, July and record August being a record. And these aren't usually particularly great but are you, months. you think you're taking market share or you think this is systemic? Mm, I think it's a bit of both. I think it's systemic as well. And mm. if you look at the, re- I'm about us for specifically, is a lot of our customers are people who are sort of 50 plus. Not mm. all, we've got a lot of people sort mm. of younger, but a lot of our customers 50 plus, they've got million bucks plus in investable mm. uh, assets. Maybe in the bank, they were getting 0%, now they're oh, getting 5%. Absolutely. That's all of a 50, sudden they're getting returns on cash. Which is obviously should have happened in the first place, yeah. but you're getting 50, 60 grand a year. Yeah, yeah. And yes, you, inflation is eating until you, you rump, but you're getting 50, 60, 100 grand a year where you didn't have any, that can be spent on going business class to For sure. Europe as half of Australia seems to in, in June and July versus not having that at all. Are you finding that, that there's much more premium travel being purchased? Airlines are saying you can't book a, a first class ticket, basically. Yeah, it's certainly business. Like when you when you walk through the cabin, all the cabins are full, but I think Singapore Airlines last week announced they were 92% full when they loads to Australia. 92%. You remember pre-COVID, you'd be seats it's everywhere. Crazy. But now that you can't get a seat for love, and that's... 92% and half those seats they can't even sell. So there's virtually no seats to be had yep. any airline leaving it coming around Australia. So there clearly is incredible demand, especially at the sort of our parents yep. kind of age. Yep. Uh, that hasn't tapered off. So the, that's the challenge, the dualistic yeah. nature of this economy. And this is not great because you don't want rich and poor. You want as egalitarian, as egalitarian as possible. We've got this situation where some people are flying business class, some people can't afford to send their kids to school. Yeah. So it's it's not ideal and it comes from and this is another podcast episode but it comes from this is an unfair tax system we have i think to an extent um which where labor's taxed at such a higher rate than capital so we can talk about that more but oh, in terms of agree. it's a great question martin uh i don't really know the answer we are at luxury Capital still investing but probably tapered back our investments slightly yeah i'm not sure what you're doing at, at catapult and your other businesses so i tell you what i think is so catapult is a crazy business in the sense that it's neither cyclical or counter-cyclical to the economy. It's just real, uh, disconnected from the economy. Yeah. So that does what it – I mean, that business is doing very well at the moment, and that just does what it does. I mean, it's a hell of a lot better running that business today than when there was no pro sports being yeah. played for two years. Yeah. You know, I mean, in a, in a business, Daily Blooms, which is a flowers yeah. business, you know, the founder, Courtney, um, definitely post-COVID, that's – you know, sending flowers, that was a tough place to be for mm. a while. I think, you know, as an industry – still struggles yeah. as a business she's a great founder right so yeah. she's she's taking market, market share yeah. in that business yeah um but it does not it it feels like there's certainly not as much cash around as there was because flowers actually a really great discretionary indicator i thought because it's kind of thing you 100 bucks for a bunch of flowers you're not spending that if you don't have much money yeah so it's this beautiful indicator because it's not a hundred percent discretionary in the sense that if someone 
has a birthday mm. or a whatever or there's a condolence, people generally will a lot, a lot of the time will turn to flowers. Yeah. And so you see what they're buying and you see how often they're buying. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty interesting barometer. You see it in basket size. So average order value presumably – my well, the, tr- the trick with average order value, this is what I think about public companies that are reporting falls in AOV. Yep. Like that's terrible because inflation has pushed up everybody's mm. prices. Yeah. So actually a 5% increase is a flat AOV effectively. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, like th- that's what um, Daily Bloom sees a bit. I think, as I said to you, like my view of the economy right now, if you're running a business, is that um, the noise is diminished in the marketing market at the moment. And so for me, like, great businesses, like really well-run businesses, are going to use this as an opportunity. They're going to be ultra-tight on costs. So I think like any business that hasn't reduced their cost base is either unique or badly run or dumb or all of those things. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, I think you know, the best investment now probably is a rental property that you rent out given the cues that we're seeing it mm. for rental properties. Yeah. yeah so, I, don't, I, I mean, definitely it's not a time to be ultra-aggressive in growing a business. You know, I think bulky goods discretionary. You saw JB. Yep. Like JB was down a bit. Good guys was down much more. I think I'd rather be in travel. I always want to be in sports. Yep. And I think travel is a good place to be right now. And that's it for today. Thanks so much for joining us. And we'll be back next week with our brand new episode.